we're preaching through Revelation, but I want you to turn to the prophet Joel this morning. In the Old Testament, Hosea, Joel, Amos, the second of the minor prophets. Turn to Joel. We're going to be in chapter 2. And again, we have a situation as we often do where we're forced to, or it would behoove us to consider the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Okay? A lot of the prophecies we reference to during the Christmas season from Isaiah and Micah and others about the birth of Christ, uh, and then we consider the things that were fulfilled at His first coming, and then in the context of those same prophecies, there are things that are yet to be fulfilled at His second coming. These things being fresh on our mind, I think it behooves us to consider a moment the nature of Old Testament prophecy, which we've done before. So this is kind of a review. Does every does any these outlines, by the way, we're still on the first page I gave you, but it'll continue into this other one. Does everybody have or anybody have this sheet here? I gave them out last time. The mountain peaks of prophecy. I hope you had an opportunity to look at that and try to get an understanding of the perspective of the Old Testament prophets when they prophesied God's truth versus our perspective on this, the other side of the cross looking back. And it will help you with some of these things. A lot of what John sees in Revelation, we've already discovered, is the same thing that's seen by some of the Old Testament prophets. And it's described, maybe a different aspect is highlighted, but it's the same thing. Like those living creatures that John saw around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4 were the same thing that Ezekiel saw. Okay? So, uh, we have that situation again here in Revelation 9 with the fifth trumpet judgment. The fifth trumpet judgment is a demonic army, locust-like creatures that, are, that ascend out of the bottomless pit after Satan is given authority to unlock it and they sweep through the world. Their mission is to torment, not to kill. To torment the men that fear not God. And they will, they, their mission is to torment them for five months. Okay, This is a horrible, infernal army of torment that awaits the world and its judgment. Joel the prophet also saw, I believe, this army. Okay, And the army that Joel saw had a initial fulfillment in something that would come upon Jerusalem and it has an ultimate fulfillment right here in Revelation 9. Just like later in Joel, we talked about a while back and we went to Joel, the end of chapter 2 where Joel prophesies about God pouring out His Spirit in the last days and how the apostles saw the initial fulfillment of that at Pentecost. But yet there was an ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 7 with the sealing of the 144,000 witnesses in the context of the seal judgments and in the context of Armageddon that Joel prophesies later in chapter 3. And so we've already seen Joel looking at this period of time, but if we go back to chapter 2, we'll see the same thing we've been talking about in Revelation 9. Joel, I mentioned last time, was probably a contemporary of Elisha in Elisha's last or elderly days. 
He lived probably around the time of Jonah. And it's very possible that he was one of the pioneer prophets of Judah. Although I believe Obadiah probably came around that time or actually a little earlier. In chapter 1 of Joel, he talks about a plague of insects that had literally descended upon the land in his day. And he calls the people uh, to pause and consider that nothing like this has come. This is a day of judgment. And he saw this judgment and the famine that resulted from it as an occasion to preach God's ultimate judgment in the day of the Lord. I think we can learn a lesson from that. I mentioned this briefly last time. When we see judgment befall our nation as we see it today, we're not seeing the seals being poured out. We're not seeing the trumpet judgments, but we're seeing judgment. Judgment exists in the type and quality of leaders we have running our country. Judgment is in the nature of the church and its weakness and its apostasy, and Laodicea and lukewarmness. We need to see these judgments, even floods and tornadoes and other things, as an occasion to warn men about ultimate judgment. And that's what Joel does in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he starts to prophesy considering ultimate judgment. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We move from the near horizon, Joel's day, and the judgment they were seeing, to the far horizon. And that's often what happens with Old Testament prophecy. The prophet goes immediately from a near horizon to a far horizon. And we're going to see why that happens when we look at this chart here in a moment. Blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. This is a warning to the people of Israel. This is a warning to the people in the land of Israel. Revelation 9 is a warning to the whole world. But it's a warning concerning the same judgment. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains. The days we're talking about in Revelation are days of darkness and gloominess. A great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like neither shall there any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. Not killed, but pained. All faces, faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march everyone on his ways and they shall not break ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Sounds a lot like the days we're in in Revelation. 
And look, look at verse 11. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. His camp is very great, for He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? That's a rhetorical question. Who can abide the coming or the day of the Lord? No one apart from the grace and mercy of God Himself. So we have Joel proclaiming this prophecy to the land of Israel about a terrible army, great and strong, that would flood the land. An army that couldn't be killed. That would bring pain and hurt to the land. Not death, but pain. People would be pained. They had the appearance of horses, a noise like chariots. They would climb the walls just like locusts, up and over the walls and in the windows and everything. Okay? This is a prophecy of coming judgment to Jerusalem. Now, Joel was about 800 B.C. About 220 years later, we would see an initial fulfillment of this. What ran into Jerusalem that didn't break ranks, that climbed over the wall and came in every house and every window, and many people were pained, and as a result, the entire city was destroyed? 586 B.C. We've talked about it numerous times. What happened in Jerusalem? Babylon. The Babylonian army came from the north, invaded the land, laid siege to the city, and God's judgment came when the siege, the city wall was broken, the temple was burned to the ground, and people were led away captive. Much pain. This was initially fulfilled when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Much that's described here Babylon and its invasion of Israel looked like it. But it's just an initial fulfillment. Just like Jesus talked about John the Baptist being a type of Elijah that would come in the last days. He said, this is Elijah if you will receive it. It was a type, an initial type, ultimately fulfilled when those two witnesses come that we're going to read about in chapter 11. And they're all part of this because it's part of the second woe. The end of the second woe that we're going to read about, the last half of Revelation 9, coincides with the murder and the resurrection of these witnesses. But Babylon being a type of this, the Lord's army, it was the Lord's army brought to reap destruction on Jerusalem. Habakkuk the prophet discusses that. But it's ultimately fulfilled in what we see here in Revelation chapter 9. Let's look at a few similarities. Let's go back to Revelation. We're in chapter 9, the fifth trumpet. We talked about the star falling from heaven. Satan given the key to the bottomless pit. He opens up the bottomless pit, that great gulf between Lazarus and the rich man. We talked about the different compartments of the underworld and how they relate to Gehenna, the ultimate lake of fire last week. He opened this bottomless pit. There was a great smoke that came out and darkened the sun and the air. And out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth that were given power like a scorpion has power. And they were commissioned not to kill men, but to torment them. They were also told they were not to touch those sealed by the seal of the living God. We know those 144,000 are sealed with that seal. And then we get into their description. And they were given five months to torment men. Okay? Now, um, let's look at some similarities as we go down to what we just read in Joel. 
Verse 7 of chapter 9, the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses. We see horses right there in Joel chapter 2. Prepared unto battle. Talks about them having crowns of gold, faces like men, and, and, and hair like women, teeth like lions, breastplates of iron. And then you go down to verse 9, their, the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. So you see horses and chariots being used as descriptive terms in both of these passages. It's said in Joel chapter 2 that they would bring much pain and blackness to the people. Not death, but pain. Okay, what does it say in verse 5 of chapter 9? To them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their power in verse 10 was to hurt men five months. So what they were given the power to do in both passages is the same. Joel chapter 2 verse 8 says they can't be hurt. So they're obviously not natural beings. They're supernatural beings. Okay, What we read about here in chapter 9, the composite creatures described here are not natural locusts. They're not just super locusts like the ones that attacked Egypt in one of the plagues, but they're demonic creatures that cannot be killed as men are killed. Okay, In chapter 2 of Joel verse 10, it says the earth would quake before them. The heavens would tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And when we read here in chapter 9, the smoke of the pit darkens the sun and the air. And if you go on to the end of chapter 11, we have kind of a parenthesis in chapter 10 that we're going to get to next week that involves Jesus reading and declaring His authority over the earth. A public reading, I believe, of that title deed we've talked about. And then we get into chapter 11 that kind of shows there's a temple in Jerusalem these days and it discusses the ministry of the two witnesses that are raised up by God to preach to the world for 42 months, three and a half years. And at some point, the Antichrist has had enough and he has given power to kill them. And this is televised to the whole world. And when these witnesses are killed, their bodies lie in the streets. They're not given a burial. And the world rejoices. And how do they rejoice? They give gifts to one another to celebrate the death of the street preachers. Then after three days, a voice from heaven says, come up. And those witnesses get on their feet and they go to be with the Lord. And it says that their enemies beheld them and that same hour was a great earthquake. Okay, Joel says the earth would quake before this army. The same hour was a great earthquake, the end of chapter 11, and a tenth part of the city fell. What city? Jerusalem. That's what Joel is writing to. And in the earthquake were slain 7,000 men, and the, men, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. What's the first woe? The fifth trumpet, this army of locusts. What is the second woe? We're going to see it at the end of chapter 9. It's, it's an infernal cavalry. It's another supernatural army given power to kill. And then it, what's at the end of the second woe? That The earthquake. It's coincides with the resurrection of the two witnesses at the end of their meeting. So we see these things happening also in Joel's prophecy. So undoubtedly this thing has also been described. Just like Daniel takes the end times and describes them as they relate to Israel, so Revelation takes the end times and describes them as they relate to the whole world. 
That's what's happening here. So again, we have another instance of Revelation restating a prophecy already given. And that's evidence that this is not just some mystical way of describing the church. Unbelievable. I read a commentary on Revelation 9 from a Reformed website in which this guy is describing how he is going to share the true interpretation of these things. And he's looking at the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments. And his interpretation is that this is the church taking the gospel throughout the whole world. Are you kidding me? Is that how we interpret Scripture? Unbelievable that people can look at Scripture and twist it. That is not what's being described here. And proof of that is that it was already given in the Old Testament times to Israel in days that they were suffering the effects of a locust plague. So the things in Revelation are not new things. And it's interesting when Ricky and I attempt to share Christ with Israelis, we don't have to start from the New Testament. We start in the Old Testament and then we show them how these things are fulfilled in the New or how the New is stating the same thing that the prophets of old said. And that the Old Testament authors were Jews, but so were the New Testament authors. It's a Jewish book. And these things they've never heard before. And Revelation is a prime example of that. And it's, it's interesting to use those things as a witness. So we've got the same prophecy that has a near horizon and a far horizon. And then we have it restated again in Revelation. Let's pause for a minute. If you've got this sheet, I think it's a good description of, or, or it's a good um, visualization of Old Testament, an Old Testament prophet's perspective when he gave a prophecy like what Joel gave here versus our perspective as the church. Okay? And so you can see the Old Testament prophet is standing here and he's looking across the mountains. And between these ranges of mountains are valleys. He's looking over here, he sees this mountain with the birth of Christ and His crucifixion and resurrection and Pentecost. But he's also seeing across to Antichrist and the coming of Jesus again and the kingdoms and the new heavens and the new earth. He's looking across from this side and he sees those mountain peaks. But between these ranges is the valley of the church, the church age, the millennial kingdom, and the, uh, the eternal age. What happens when we stand out? I know I can stand out my back uh, door. We have a pretty nice view of the South Mountains. Jim and Vicki have an even better view because you can look toward the north. We see a whole lot of mountains. Okay? A lot of times, in fact, there's one view out on our edge of the county where if it's extremely clear you can see Table Rock. But if it's not clear, it's blended with the hills, I believe Grandfather Mountain behind it. You can't even tell you're looking at two mountains. There's a valley in between. If you just came back from Nepal like some of you did here, we stood on our roof on a very rare day and we could see the top of Mount Everest. We're not looking at the massive of Mount Everest. What we're seeing in front of Mount Everest is Noopsy and some of the other peaks below it. And there's a lot of valleys in between. Trust me, I've walked them. I've walked to base camp. And it's a long way. But we can't see the valleys. We just see a big heaping mass of mountains. And we see the top of Everest because it's taller than everything. Imagine that being the view of the Old Testament prophet when he saw things related to Jesus' first coming 
And he saw things related to his second coming. That was his view. But what happens when your perspective is from the side? I meant to bring this image this morning and I totally forgot. It's a famous image on a whole lot of... I've got a poster with it. It's on a coffee cup that Bishnu gave me. But it's that famous scene um, from up near Everest Base Camp where you see Everest. You see Lhotse, you see Nupsi, and you see all these peaks and you see the valley running up to base camp. Okay, That's like our perspective. We see the valleys between the mountains. We see the route going to the top of Mount Everest. It's not just a, a heaping mass of rock from a distance. Our perspective as the church is from the side. See how we can see these valleys from the side? While the Old Testament prophet looked from another perspective that didn't see the valleys. The nature of Old Testament prophecy. Let's just look at a couple of verses this morning. Bob, would you turn to 2 Peter 1, 19-21? Daniel, 1 Peter 1, 10-12. And then, Jason, I'll just have you read Acts 1, 6-8. What does the New Testament tell us about Old Testament prophecy and what the prophets saw? 2 Peter 1, 19-21 We have also a more sure word of prophecy worthy to you do well that you heed, take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts Knowing this first, that no prophecy of, of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. What we learn very clearly here is that the prophets spoke by the Holy Ghost. They spoke by the revelation of God. What they spoke was God's truth. But we also see that we have a more sure word of prophecy because of Jesus Christ and His completed work on the cross. And that sure word of prophecy is our perspective on the Scriptures. It's not our experience. That's in the context of Peter talking about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw Moses and Elijah come down. Peter calls the Word of God a more sure word of prophecy than even his own experience. So that ought to teach a lot of us. When somebody says, God told me to do something, and it doesn't gel with the Word of God, then the more sure testimony is not the experience, it's the Word of God. But our perspective as New Testament saints is not limited in the sense that it was by the Old Testament prophets looking forward to a promise while we look back to that promise fulfilled. But the Old Testament prophets did speak by the Holy Ghost and what Joel wrote and what was preserved by God is the Word of God. There's no doubt there. 1 Peter 1.10-12 Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you searching what or manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto which are now reported unto you, 
by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Peter tells us very clear in 2 Peter, the prophet spoke by the Holy Ghost. This is the Word of God. But what we learn here in the verses Daniel just read is that the prophets did not understand oftentimes what they prophesied. They prophesied by the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes they didn't understand it. Go read Daniel. Daniel had a lot of prophecies come to him. And you'll read that at the end of these visions, he talks about his spirit is troubled. He doesn't understand what all this means. And understanding only came when God sent His angel Gabriel to interpret it for him. So oftentimes the prophets didn't understand what they preached or what they prophesied fully. Why? Because they couldn't see the valleys between the mountain peaks. Most of the prophecies were believed by the Jews or as, as, as happening in one coming of Messiah. Okay, they saw Messiah as coming once. They couldn't see the valley between the first and the second coming, the valley of the church age. Acts chapter 1 verse 6, here's proof of it. Here's proof of it in what the disciples asked Jesus after He was risen from the dead. When they therefore were come together, they asked of Him, saying, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the utmost part of the earth. The disciples said, Lord, are you going at this time to restore the kingdom of Israel? They knew that Israel would be restored. It was written in the prophets. You know, the same prophets that talked about the suffering of Messiah. Isaiah, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, also talked about the reign of Messiah. His kingdom, Isaiah chapter 2. It made sense to them, Lord, now it's time. Are you going to set up the kingdom? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God has put in His plan. In other words, there's a valley between my first coming and my second coming. It's the valley of time in which you will be my witnesses and go to the ends of the earth. It's the New Testament church age. didn't mean Christ wouldn't reign literally and physically. It just meant it wasn't time. And the, the disciples could only see from the perspective at that point that this prophet is standing. But as the Spirit of God began to speak to them and began to give them the, new, the words of the New Testament and they went out and preached the Gospel, in that transition period in the book of Acts, the perspective changed. We see the mountain peaks and the valleys from the side and so we're able to separate the first and second comings of Christ. You know, a lot of Jewish people would look at the Old Testament and say, there's never two comings of Christ prophesied. That's wrong. It's not right. The Messiah only comes once and thereby they reject the testimony of Jesus Christ. When the fact is, there were two comings of Christ prophesied. But the one that spoke it and the ones that heard it had a perspective much like this man standing here. Much like our perspective from that rooftop in Kathmandu versus the perspective I would have if I was standing there at Kalapatar up in that valley looking at Everest, separated from the peaks that blend in with it from Kathmandu. Turn to Numbers 24.17. I think this is appropriate because of the 
Christmas season that's just finished, and we talk a lot about the birth of Christ. That was just His first coming to accomplish a specific work as illustrated here on top of this mountain of His first coming, His birth, His active obedience, His death, burial, and resurrection, Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit. In Numbers 24, we've got Balaam, that wicked prophet, hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel, who were in the plains of Moab, ready to go into the land God had promised them. Balak was hired to curse Israel. And he was a corrupt man that wanted to profit with the Word of God. He wanted profiteering to make money off of it. God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel. He was only able to speak in blessing. God can even control the mouth of a false prophet if He wants to so that the false prophet speaks truth. Of course, we judge those things by the Word of God. We can tell very quickly whether it's God speaking to him or not. But Balaam had spoke three times. Hired to curse, but could only speak blessing. In chapter 24, however, this is the fourth time he speaks. Balak the king is infuriated. I hired you to curse these people and all you can do is bless them. The prophet tries to leave. And so, this is the point, at, the, at this point in chapter 24, Balaam, Balaam speaks one more time. And in verse 15 it says, He took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. So he sees a vision of God, the Almighty. And what does he see? Verse 17, I shall see Him, but not now. I shall behold Him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, comma, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam says, I see Him, but then He's gone. I see Him, but then He's not near. In other words, He's there, but He's not. And then He's there, but He's not. And then He says, I shall, there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What we have here, my friends, are the two comings of Christ prophesied by, of all people, Balaam the prophet, as God revealed it to him. What Balaam saw was a star out of Jacob. What did the wise men see from the east that guided them to Jerusalem? A star. Okay? Balaam also saw a scepter. That's what a king holds that gives him his power and authority arising out of Egypt or out of uh, uh, Israel. The star is a reference to the birth of Christ. As we see it played out with the wise men and in Bethlehem, the star pointed to the place of his birth. The scepter points to his reign. When does he reign as a king over Israel? At the second coming. Balaam described both comings. And that's how he saw it. He saw the star and the scepter as one. Well, that's how the Jews saw it. Down through the Old Testament as one. Their perspective. But it's interesting that Balaam says, I see him, but then I don't. I, behold him, I will behold him, but not near. So in other words, I see him, but I don't. The first coming. I see him again, but it's not near. It's far. It's far. 
So there's something between the two. It's almost written right there, clear as can be. Our perspective, however, say it's sitting on top of a mountain, our perspective is different. We see the star and we see the scepter. And the church age is the valley in between. That's how our perspective of the, as the church would be different from the Old Testament prophet or the Old Testament saints. Right there we have the two comings of Christ separated by the valley of the church age. That doesn't mean that we're special. It doesn't mean that the, the truths contained in the Old Testament and New Testament are different. It's a matter of perspective. And the only reason we have that perspective is because God revealed it to us in the writings of the apostles and in the writings of the Gospels that showed the life of Christ. Jesus revealed it to us when He discussed things in the Old Testament and showed their ultimate fulfillment versus their initial fulfillment. Okay? So, the um, coming, two comings of Messiah mentioned there in Numbers are another illustration of the nature of Old Testament prophecy and the mountain peaks of prophecy, prophecy per se as illustrated on this chart. So I think that's something helpful to remember as you read Old Testament prophecy and see how the book of Revelation is not its own entity. It's tied to all these other books. Okay? And it's related to the same judgments that are prophesied in the, in the prophets. Okay? So it's not some mystical thing fulfilled in the church. If it was prophesied regarding Israel, it will be re fulfilled re regarding Israel. We're just given a, a perspective that's very different. Our perspective is even much different than the one who designed these charts in the early 1900s because we live on this side of Israel being gathered into a nation. Something that hadn't happened at this point. Something that even looked like there was an even, even a remote chance of it happening. So we are in a very unique place and that's why Scripture concerning the coming of Christ becomes all the more important, all the more easily understood as we get nearer and nearer to that day. The signs of the times. We need to be those that look at the signs of the times and are taught thereby. I'll finish with this. In Joel chapter 2, this army of locust creatures is called God's army. In Revelation 9, this fifth seal of judgment, these horrible locust creatures, they too are God's army. They're unleashed by Satan, a demonic army. Satan's given the authority to open that bottomless pit. But they're God's army. And my friends, above all things, is God who judges and governs. A sovereign God. The divine hand of providence. Isaiah 45.7 has some very stark truth about this. Isaiah 45 verse 7. A lot of Christians today cannot stomach this truth. I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace, and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. really doesn't need any commentary. It's pretty clear what's said there. Everything is sourced in God. Doesn't mean God is evil. Doesn't mean there is any darkness in Him at all. But He is the source and Father of all things. And those that ask... Why would a benevolent God create evil or why would a benevolent God allow evil are self-focused? Unable to see and realize that everything happens for His glory and to bring glory to Himself. 
A person that asks that question can't even fathom that what happens, happens for God's glory. It says in the New Testament, Paul says, what if God was willing to put up with and tolerate evil and vessels of destruction for the purpose of making His glory in us all the more abundant? What if the trials and tribulations we suffer, what if the things that are going to happen on this earth in the last days are such that in all of eternity, His glory in us is even all the more intense and abundant? Makes it all worthwhile. And in the end, when the Antichrist and the beast are burning in the lake of fire, when Satan is bound for all eternity in the lake of fire, and the wicked are tormented forever in the presence of the Lamb, God gets all the glory. And there is no more, what about all the evil in the world, but what about this good God who brought it all to one glorious conclusion. It says in Joel that this army that would come and desecrate Jerusalem just like it will torment men all over the world is strong. It's an army that is strong that executeth His Word. Even these demonic creatures, even these evil things that take place, even Antichrist in the book of Revelation executes God's Word. Because it was God that gave the Word that these things would come. And they come and they execute His purpose. They're foolish to think that they are independent of those things and they will think these things and they will act in accordance to destroy God and His Word. But we'll be unable to do it because He governs all things. That's an incredible truth. It's a truth that we can find rest in. Okay? This infernal army in the fifth seal judgment is the Lord's army. It's the army described in Joel. It's the Lord's army. Next week we'll continue. I want to start to move through this. We have the fifth seal judgment, infernal torment. The sixth seal judgment is infernal destruction. I believe that the fifth... Uh, not the seals, I'm sorry, it's the trumpet judgments. Okay? I believe the fifth trumpet is, an army, is a demon army uh, commissioned to torment. And then the sixth trumpet is an, angel, is, is, a, is an army commanded by fallen angels which is commissioned to kill. So we've got demons and fallen angels being unleashed on this planet in a way that we can't even imagine. What should we do with this knowledge? We should rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ has delivered us from the wrath to come. He is the only one that can save us to God. He's the only one that can save us from God and from those that go forward into the earth to execute His Word. We can be saved from that. Kids, we can escape these horrible things. It's so simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the church, by God's good grace and mercy, will be on the sidelines as these things come to a conclusion. Jesus Christ will return. Israel will be restored. He will reign with His saints. And the earth will be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Praise God. Anybody have any questions? I know I didn't really proceed through the chapter, but I thought it was important to again revisit Old Testament prophecy.